0: we are looking at Slaughter High, a slasher film from 1986, and we are talking to Johnny Walker about his research on horror films. Uh, so Adrian, uh, why don't you introduce Johnny and uh, talk a little bit about his research? Yeah,
1: so Johnny is a hes a, a film historian. He writes a lot about horror. Uh, if you've read anything about horror films in the last 10 years or so, he probably wrote it. <laughs> um so he's up at the uh, at Northumbria University and I first met Johnny when he was a PhD student many years ago at a conference and uh, it's very nice to see how well he's done for himself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if, that,
1: if that doesn't sound too patronising.
0: Yeah, I met Johnny at uh, SCMS in Seattle like eight years ago.
1: Oh, wow. Uh,
0: I think I was, a. I mean, I was just finishing my PhD then. He might have been as well. Um, But yeah, very prolific writer and he's currently a PI, a project investigator on a project about British horror cinema, isn't he? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we can ask him more about that when he comes on the podcast.
1: Mm. So he picked Slaughter High and i would never seen this before. Had you?
0: I hadn't, no. But I mean, there is, I'm not trying to make excuses for myself, but there's just so many hundreds of slasher films released in that era, Mm. isn't there? Um, So I'd... uh, yeah, and it's it's very much sort of of, um, of its time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: yeah. And this is not our first 80s slasher film. No. What
0: was the other one again? It was Slumber Party was, Massacre. Yes, one yeah. and two. Yeah. And they're, yeah, quite similar film. I mean, they're, they're going to mm. be quite similar films because the slasher is quite formu- formulaic, isn't it?
1: Yeah, although in this film, so in Slumber Party Massacre, he has this kind of signature weapon which is this big drill which with all of its phallic uh, associations this one he doesn't seem to have a weapon of choice every person is just killed off in a new and more bizarre way
0: slumber party massacre uh is the parody slasher that we did didn't isn't it mm-hmm. I, I do get yeah. confused with these so slaughter high um quite similar but it's not it's not actually linked to slumber party massacre it's a different thing mm. um but it is quite uh uh, yeah, it kind of departs from um, type, actually, because uh, in Slaughter High the killer is kind of the main protagonist like, usually usually we have you know um, the, the person that we're rooting for the final girl or final boy if you like, uh, but in Slaughter High we're kind of almost taking the perspective of the killer so, um, yeah, I mean to, to talk a bit about the plot, so basically it's, it's uh, it's kind of set, we start off um, when these this group of kids are in high school and obviously they're about 40 when um, this film is being filmed. So you have to really kind of suspend your disbelief and just pretend that they're teenagers for a second. I mean, Caroline Monroe's got to be about 34 in this film um, when we start off. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so we, we start off at the high school and um, the... This uh, poor nerd guy, Marty, is being beaten up by these bullies. And Mm. then we go to the present where um, all the school kids are getting together for their high school reunion. uh, And it's the bullies who are mates who were kind of, um, you know, really kind of laying into this poor guy who ended up in hospital. Uh, So they get invited to their high school reunion and they turn up at the high school to find that the school has been closed and it's all in disrepair but they decide to get drunk and have a good time anyway. And then
1: somebody very helpfully has laid on all the refreshments for them. Yeah, somebody has laid on refreshments,
0: which they don't question.
1: (laughs) Not suspicious (laughs) at all. No. They're like, "Ooh, beer. (laughs) and Just Um, go for it.
0: Yeah. And then, uh, of course, they they get picked off one by one in um, increasingly Mm. grotesque and gruesome ways.
1: And it's, uh, yeah, it's an odd one that so as we will talk about um, with Johnny, I didn't realise this was not an American film. but It It looks, it was,
0: uh, I didn't know that either. It just yeah. looks exactly, it sounds exactly like yeah. an American
1: film. But it's passing itself off as American, but it was actually shot in the UK and I looked up where it was and the interiors were a grammar school in Westminster, um, so quite a well-to-do school and the exteriors were an abandoned sanatorium in Surrey, so... It's kind of an interesting... You can mix. kind of I mean, tell. Yeah, it does yeah. make me wonder why they didn't just make a film about an abandoned asylum and then they could have just saved money and had one location. But well, it's, it's got to be set in too. a
0: school, isn't
1: it? Yeah. I mean, but they, a slasher um, film. The, if you look at the credits, they're really interesting. There are three directors who mm. also all wrote the script and I was trying to work out who these guys were and I'd not really heard of any of them, but one of them did special effects. So that was yeah. clearly his bit. And one of them is, like, from a really wealthy dynasty and clearly was the man with the connections and the money. Okay. Um, Yeah, like Mark Ezra, one of the directors, he is connected to the um, Ezra Sassoon Banking and Trading Dynasty. Um, Okay. And his his ancestry goes back to the days of the Empire. Wow. Which Um, must be how they got connections to get the money for the finance and to use the school as a location and all that
0: yeah maybe um I noticed that yeah Mark Ezra I didn't know his background but um I thought it was quite interesting that he like he's also linked as a producer to the film Waking Ned, which is about as different from Slaughter High as you can possibly get. It's like Mm. a kind of feel good Irish comedy about a man who wins the lottery, then dies and his mates have to uh, figure out a way to share the money. Um, And he also is a children's author. So he writes children's books. Uh, So, I mean, this this is kind of an outlier in his uh, Mm. catalogue of things that he's done.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's clearly, it was, they were in it for the money. I don't think anybody, anybody was in it for wow. the money. Wow.
0: Um, but the <laughs> uh, the other guy, the special effects guy is Peter Lytton, isn't it? Uh, yes. So I noticed that he, uh, he inv- did he invent Max Hedrum, you know, the 1980s uh, computer-generated character from Channel 4?
1: Did he? I love that guy. Well, I
0: mean, it's, I'm only going by what Wikipedia said. Yeah, <laughs> and okay. I don't know if it's true, but um, yeah. I spe- he uh, apparently he's uh, credited with creating Max Headroom, oh, okay. uh, which is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, when I the one thing I did see on the IMDb is that he did the creature for Rawhead Rex, the um, Clive Barker sort of Irish horror film thing that was a big flop when it came out, but now of course is a cult classic. Mm. Um, but yeah, well, that makes sense. I guess if he does special effects, I mean, Max Headroom was just a guy with a rubber head. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that totally fits. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they this is a film for all three of those directors. They didn't have massive careers in the movies and this seems to be something that they did partly for fun and partly for money.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what did you think of the film, Adrian?
1: I, I, was having a, I was having quite a good time once I'd settled into what it was going to be. Like I went in not knowing nothing except the fact that Caroline Monroe was in it and um do you, do you,
0: do you have a Caroline Monroe story
1: oh naturally naturally uh, <laughs> naturally tell us your
0: Caroline Monroe story
1: oh only just' cause I used to go to lots of I've talked about this before I used to go to lots of hammer events, and she was always at them um so I've met her several times um and if, about ten years ago there was a really good hammer two day event put on by de Montfort in Leicester. Uh-huh. Um, like a big academic yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah. fan thing. And I got invited to cover it for Cinema Retro. So that gave me access to the green room, <laughs> which is pretty much the only time in my life where I've had that kind of status. So I was hanging out in the green room between events. And so I just got chatting. So Caroline Monroe was in there. Carol Cleveland was in there. Mark Gatis was in there. You like must logical. have been in your element. Oh, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was one moment where I'd gone back for something and Carol, it was just me and Carol Cleveland, and that was it. And nobody else was there. And we just chatted about Monty Python for like 20 minutes. And uh, it was, you know, mm. the greatest day, greatest day of my life. But anyway, yeah, so <laughs> You're Caroline not being Monroe, sarcastic there, are you? It was genuinely the greatest day of your life. <laughs> um, Caroline Monroe, she does have a reputation for just everyone says she's lovely. That's the word you always use. She's very generous with her fans, and she'll talk to anybody. She'll have you picture, you know, take pictures with you. I've met other Hammer stars who were a bit more prickly. Madeline Smith is a, quite unapproachable, mm. but um, Caroline Monroe, she's yeah, everyone loves her. So it's just so funny to see the kind of stuff that she was popping up in in the eighties because obviously her her Hammer heyday was you know fifteen years before she made this film. So she had this sort of wilderness period in the eighties where she was making really odd horror movies. Like around this same time. She went to Italy to be in an unofficial sequel to Suspiria, directed by Luigi wow. Cotzi, which ended up being called The Black Cat. Um, yes, yeah, I used haven't to seen Kaiser. that. Sounds uh, fascinating.
0: Is it really good?
1: It's mad. I mean, not <laughs> it's not good, but it's bizarre. So yeah, she's re- she's very interesting. But yeah, anyway. So uh, yeah, so I was asking was you I, what you thought of the film. Sorry, before yeah, I sidetracked. That's all, you. I, all I knew was that she was in it, but I didn't expect her to be playing a sixteen-year-old or whatever she's supposed to be. Oh, it's just the beginning of at the, the film. Beginning. Just have yeah. To, yeah. But yeah, once you get past that and they're all a bit more grown up. What I thought was interesting with the movie was that there's kind of, they, they took that element of, oh, it was all a dream moment from Carrie. And then I think, and they just sort of used that several times. It's like they were sort of running out of ideas. So they think, oh, how do, we, how do we get out of this corner we've backed ourselves into? Oh, we'll have it all be a dream. Yeah. Um so it's a bit you can tell that the guys who made this film were not really filmmakers before. But they gave it what I like about it is they gave it a good try.
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh it's not original, um, it's wheeling out the same old tropes, but it is quite tightly scripted. Like you mm. kind of it doesn't la it doesn't kind of sag. Um no. I it's was always boring. sort of engaged with it. Uh mm and I mean by this point what 1986 so like the golden age of slashers is like 78 to about by 84 it was getting quite old right Mm -hmm. um and even uh like Freddy Krueger is moving into parody uh and so yeah 1986 was was really I mean there's I mean a lot of these films were still really popular but on video weren't they but um, mm-hmm. cinematically, like, there had been slasher overload. Um, yeah. So even at the time, I think the all-a-dream thing was quite um, quite overplayed.
1: Mm-hmm. And I suppose that some of the major studios, I mean, obviously, like you know, the, the Freddy Krueger films, were getting big cinematic releases. So although the slashers had started out quite small and cheap, I imagine for people like this, they wouldn't have had much of a chance to get it into the cinemas because they are being pushed out by the bigger Mm. guys doing the bigger budget horror films. And like you said, the Freddy Krueger films are getting quite big and elaborate and over the top. Yeah, Um, This film would have probably done a lot better if it had come out about five years earlier. Yeah, but
0: but, I mean, there were still reliable moneymakers. That's why people made horror, didn't they? Well, yeah. yeah. And
1: that's what, yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it with Johnny. The whole video thing is really where the money was, I Mm. guess, by this point. But yeah, I liked it. I liked the location, um, the school. I kept thinking, how, yeah, you know, where is this place? And then, of course, I realised it was just a real school, but not a, presumably. I don't think the school was abandoned. I've looked at the history of the school on Wikipedia, and it doesn't sound like it was an abandoned school. So they clearly just had access in the summer holidays or something. You're very <laughs> and, fascinated with yeah. the buildings. Well, yeah, I just thought. Well, I, I always like. I've always had a soft spot for, uh, you know, abandoned buildings. I always think they're fun to. Mm explore and films tend you know low budget films if they can get access to an abandoned building that always adds production value yeah um so to have uh, but, but they did have genuine access to an abandoned asylum which was called holloway sanatorium and it's now a very expensive gated community uh, <laughs> in near virginia water but it was um it was like a victorian asylum for mm. almost 100 years and it had been empty for several years before they filmed here. So all those exteriors and the grounds and stuff that you see are all this um, big old abandoned building. Because the actual school is in the middle of Westminster. So obviously not much room for running around. Outside. Yeah, no,
0: definitely not. Um, um,
1: I I did once go and explore a real abandoned asylum. There was a famous one near where I live called Helling lie, which had been empty for years and people were always going urban exploring there, and then they started to demolish it. So, me and a friend with we took our cameras and climbed in. And did you make a film? I, no, I just. You shot, could have made a slasher film. Yeah, should have done. I did I take lots of photos, and I nearly fell through a big hole in the floor. Oh God! Yeah, it's so dangerous.
0: Uh, <laughs> don't try this. Don't try this in any other abandoned building.
1: No, I wouldn't do it now. It was a bit stupid, but um, but yeah. But they're always really interesting, and obviously, so many films use abandoned buildings to be uh, to be their backdrops but anyway but yeah so no i thought it looked good they had good production value in this movie and the special effects are not bad yeah no. considering
0: um well one of the directors was a special effects guy mm. maybe that's why
1: yes definitely helps uh
0: but yeah i mean i kind of um i like the it was, it was very familiar, it had all the tropes like the the killer is, is created through a trauma that happens to them and then, you know, badly mm. burned, becomes a monster uh, starts killing high school kids, but then um, I mean, the, there's, among the the cast, there's nobody that's really sympathetic, like there's nobody that we're rooting for, there's no kind of love story there's no couple that we want to survive they're all just no. horrible people and yes. the killer is quite sympathetic because they, they treat him really badly they, they burn his face, yeah. they set him on fire, they do this for absolutely no reason whatsoever yeah. they humiliate him, it's like yeah, yeah.
1: He, as bullying goes it was pretty full on Yes, and like they could have they could have reined it in a little bit and still would have been fine it was, still would have been bad but there was a point where they could have just stopped but no they just kept going yeah until they They try and, they try and give him this they give him this um like this joint that's obviously been dipped in something horrible and like that's another part of their hilarious april fools day prank and i thought at first i, I thought at first they were trying to poison him or make him have a really bad trip or something but they just gave him something that tasted weird. And then that wasn't enough. So then after that, they have to do something to his lab, which is obviously, yeah, then what causes the accident. But yeah, you're right. They're all reprehensible. Yeah. And he's just a poor kid who doesn't deserve any of it. Uh, having been bullied at school myself, my sympathies were with him from the beginning, I have to say. <laughs>
0: I mean, his his response is also a bit fill on. Uh, all of his classmates, of course, are picked off and die horribly. But what's what's also interesting, and this is a spoiler because it's about how the film ends. So skip mm. forward if you don't want to hear it. But the only person who survives is actually the killer. So the killer mm. isn't uh, you know defeated. And at the end, we see him rip off his face, which is horrifying, and stare yeah. directly into the camera and start laughing maniacally. It is a weird. It it's quite a strange idea. way to end it. Uh yeah. But again, yeah, I, I don't know if it was an intentional playing around with slasher conventions, but I kind of liked any departures from uh, an established formula. I think mm. are really interesting.
1: I mean, if we're going to... Okay, so if we're going to give away the ending, after he's killed everybody in the school, he starts to be sort of haunted by their zombified corpses. They're all sort of coming for him in the school. And that reminded me of the original ending of Mark of the Devil, the... Um, sort of German-British mm-hmm. Udo Kier thing. Uh, because in that, the original ending was after everybody had been killed. They all come back up out of the ground to get their revenge on the living. Um, but that ending was cut and it's never been in the film. But I thought that was interesting here that he's killed everybody off and then they come for him. Like even the bullying doesn't stop even after they're all dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or does it, Or are they? <laughs> Who knows?
0: Sequel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, there is some real life tragedy here that the um, the actor who played Marty Simon Scully. The killer. He actually, yeah, he actually took his own life shortly after filming.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, so he never even got to see the finished oh, film. Oh wow! It's, it's the only. It's his only credit. So I'm not really sure what happened there. Um, most of the other cast didn't really do very much apart from obviously Caroline Monroe. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no other big names in here, which just it makes her sort of a bit incongruous. It's like all these random faces and Caroline Monroe. It seems a bit odd. I don't know. So
0: what did she do after this then?
1: Um I think she was I don't know. I'm just gonna be boring and read out of the I read off the IMDB here. But she was just doing more horror movies, really, um, and T V and stuff. She would I mean she was in films. For a while. She had a bit of a break in the late nineties, but yeah, she turned up in all sorts of stuff. She did another film with Peter Lytton. That's what she did. So she did actually pop up in another one of his films. Um of course this isn't the first time we've talked about Carolyn Monroe because she was in uh our favourite movie, The Monster, aka I Don't Wanna Be Bored Ah, oh,
0: but we didn't do a podcast on
1: that. We haven't done a podcast on that, but everybody surely by now has listened to our commentary. <laughs>
0: Um, I don't know if that's true, Adrian. Uh, but yeah, we did do a second features podcast-style commentary for the release of Monster, mm. um, which had Caroline Monroe in it.
1: It did, yes. Yeah, as a, as a stripper,
0: and also Joan Collins, which is yeah. a bit unexpected. What a film! <laughs> yes,
1: but yeah. So yeah, so anyway, I just think the cast are all they kind of fit the look of this kind of film. But she just sticks out like a sore thumb, not because she's a bad actor just because of who she is and her fame at this point
0: well it must have been a good selling point right for fans of horror
1: you'd think so although when i look at the posters for slaughter high she's it doesn't say starring caroline monroe like her name is not used as a particular selling Hmm. point
2: Marty Ranson was the dork of Doddsville High. You get undressed in there. His classmates laughed at him. Are you ready? Here's Marty. Where's the They something? tormented him. Where's the And then they went too far. <laughs> Now five years later, Marty's throwing a little party, a class reunion. Come on, you guys, let's party.
3: They say he still roams the nut house, ever hopeful of that chance to escape, so he can take his evil revenge out on us all.
2: And he's making sure everyone has the time of their life. I feel sick. He's created a romantic atmosphere for rekindling old flames a nice place to just hang around, Marty hasn't forgotten a thing. He's giving them a blast from the past they'll never forget. Marty Ranson is still a dork, but tonight he's getting even. Bestron Pictures presents Slaughter High.
1: We'd like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnny Walker, who is an associate professor in the Department of Arts at Northumbria University. He specializes in horror and exploitation cinema. His uh, list of writing credits is way longer than we have time to read out today. Um, Very prolific, always very interesting. And uh, he's also very young. Which (laughs) which is just making
0: us feel bad, isn't it? (laughs)
4: Well, thank you know, thanks for saying I'm young, because I don't feel <laughs> young anymore. Uh, children does, does that to you. It
1: certainly does. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly does. I
0: wouldn't know, but I'll take your word for it.
1: You selected a uh, film for, for this episode, Slaughter High. Well, why, why did you think we should watch
4: it? I mean, Slaughter High is, is I, I could have selected any film, really. I mean, the the project that I'm doing at the moment is on British horror cinema of the 80s and 90s. And, you know, when we think of those two decades, like historically, they're not necessarily seen as, in terms of output, you know, the most um, prolific or or buoyant or or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think there is something to be said for the types of films that emerge, um, let's stick to the 80s, at least in the 80s, that speak to... um, well, firstly, the industrial moment in terms of what was happening domestically in British film production, but also the scope for British horror films, um, if not in Britain, um, then on the world stage, um, which, again, is probably a loaded term to use because a lot of these films certainly were not shown theatrically. Some of them were, um, but a lot of them had a fairly decent life on video, Um, Mm. when they were released on video. And I think that is a lot of the time um, downplayed somewhat, you know, because people would rather talk about, you know, Chariots of Fire or My Beautiful Lone or whatever, (laughs) which also did very well on video, incidentally. But um, I think in sort of downplaying the presence of horror cinema in Britain during the 1980s, essentially you're, you're overlooking an entire market sector where certain films did go on to make money and were enjoyed by audiences. It it just, if not at the levels of Hammer's golden age or whatever. Mm. So to answer your question, why did I say Slaughter High? Um, That's because it was a film that was made in Britain primarily for export and it went on to do relative, well, it went on to do well relative to the climate within which it was released.
1: Now they had me fooled because I, didn't even realise it wasn't American until afterwards. Like, That's I amazing. Didn't know, I didn't know anything about this film. So I just assumed it was another one of Caroline Monroe's trips over to America films, like um, Maniac or something. But then then
4: it turns out to have all been shot over here. I was quite surprised.
0: Yeah, I was surprised too.
4: I mean, I do think, uh, I mean, you raise an interesting question. Uh, yeah, you, you you raise an interesting question about this and about Caroline Monroe's appearance in this film. Because I do think that, you know, of the films that she made in the 1980s, um, and especially the, the, the scuzzy North American stuff, like Maniac, of course, is, mm. the, is, the, is the best example. I do think that Slaughter High does fit into that. Um, you know, Maniac is one of these independent produced films that was essentially a I mean, sleeper hit, I suppose you, you could call it, that did very, very well via word of mouth. Um, in and around 42nd Street and then beyond on, on video and whatnot. And I think that film gave Caroline Monroe a sort of a renewed star quality. And I suppose, you know, I say the word star in this context, but, you know, she was a recognisable name because of the work that she'd done in, in Britain for Hammer and whatnot. Then she goes to America and she makes Maniac. And then after that, she appears in numerous other exploitation films from from that period and in fact if you watch the trailer for the film that the producers of slaughter high made before they did slaughter high caroline munro's in that film even though she's only in it for a few minutes and she's billed as the star present from the people who brought you friday the 13th
3: now comes don't open Till oh, christmas a homicidal maniac is loose at christmas His target is Santa Claus. No one dressed as Santa Claus is safe. His death toys are a spear, a gun, an open razor, a dagger, or a garotte. Execution by any means. Don't open till Christmas. Some Santa Clauses ignore the warnings. He surely wouldn't attack a woman. Don't open till Christmas with special guest star, Carolyn Monroe. Terror drives one Santa Claus into a house of wax. Amidst the wax and plaster, a real body, warm flesh, wet blood till Christmas. What possible reason could I have for going around killing Santas? Oh, none. No. You know Yeah, 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 I'm coming to get you.
0: So, Santa, did you bring me any presents?
1: I'm, I'm not the real one. No! No! No!
3: No! Starring Edmund Purdom, who knows there are only three more killing days till Christmas. Don't open till Christmas. If you do, you may not see in the new year.
4: Or she's at least billed as a reason why people might want to go out and see the film. So Mm. certainly her presence in the film is is significant, as as much as it is sort of quite bizarre. (laughs) I guess.
1: I mean, yeah. When she's supposed to be like a seventeen-year-old high school student, she's
4: about thirty-five. I found that quite entertaining.
0: I always find that <laughs> quite entertaining in slasher films. Yeah, that's
4: that's true. And she she was also in a relationship at the time with one of the directors, ah, okay. as well. Um. So yeah, her presence is is super is super interesting, and also I think speaks to the moment as well. Like you know that the film Slaughter High when it was released on the video certainly would um, would be on a shelf alongside other horror films in which Caroline Munro appeared even Mm. if they were films that were maybe 10 years old at this point Mm. so
1: and if I mean if we're going to talk about Caroline Munro she's so I've seen her several times at Hammer film events and obviously all all she ever talked about was a Hammer movies but she has loads more to do in this film than pretty much any of her Hammer films, and yet I've never heard anyone talk to her about this movie, and so I thought that was quite interesting that she actually has a pretty decent role here.
4: Yeah, I think in terms of the film's cult reputation, um, it's a film that has—I don't want to say—come back to haunt Caroline Munro, mm-hmm. because you know I, I think she feels she's pretty ambivalent about the film. Um, in the same way that she's pretty ambivalent about Maniac, which is interesting given how controversial that movie was, mm. um, and I think it was only until w- when Arrow picked it up in the UK uh, for you know for DVD distribution in whenever it was in like 2010 or 11 or something like that that th- this film found a new, a new audience, you know, mm. um, and is probably being given more spotlight than it than it ever has done. Even though it was somewhat of a cult film in in the nineties, I think. Nowadays it's um it's pretty visible thanks to the well, the restoration that it's had and and the fact that Caroline Munro now I guess fans are more interested in asking her about this stage in her career now. Or more inclined to because they're aware of the films that she made in the eighties thanks to them being reissued.
1: Well, one thing I was interested in. So, this film is trying to pass itself off as American. Um, was that a sort of popular thing for British horror films of the nineteen eighties? Were they trying to do that to disguise their origins, or is this more of a one-off?
4: That's, I mean, that's a good. That's a good question. I mean, the reason the reason why this film tries to pass itself off as an American. Is because the producers of the film. So it's this. It's quite. There's quite an interesting, or at least from my perspective, an interesting history behind the film. Are you ready? Yeah, we're ready. (laughs) Go ahead. Awesome. Can't wait. It's a long one. It's a long one. Right. So it's produced by um, a gentleman by the name of Dick Randall, and another man by the name of Steve Menezian. Um, Dick Randall was is an American or was an American. Um. Who was operating out of Rome um, between the the sixties, well, between the late sixties and until the early nineteen eighties? Steve Menezian, his co-producer, was an exhibitor originally based in Boston, and then started distributing exploitation films in the states. And he was relatively famous for um, co-financing *Last House on the Left*. And coming up with, uh, to avoid fainting, keep repeating, it's only a movie tagline. Mm -hmm. And also, he was well known for distributing Mark of the Devil and having vomit bags produced (laughs) so that people would be handed vomit bags when they went in. So, like, Steve Manasian was, by the time Slaughter High was made known within his circles there'd been some fangoria articles written about him and, and, and stuff so people so people knew who who he was but randall and menesian a few years prior made the spanish italian co-production pieces mm. the slasher film pieces which i mean if you watch it now clearly looks like a sort of a euro pudding as it were um but is a film which also tries to pass itself off as an american film yeah Um, isn't it
1: set in boston actually yeah mentioned boston yeah
4: it is set in boston and you know that was that was made because steve manasian had also co-financed the first friday the 13th film if you see what i'm saying Mm -hmm. so like there's there's lots of things going on here um and they made pieces to capitalize on the success of friday the 13th then they then dick randall moved to britain as soon as that film had uh completed and started to make another film called don't open till christmas with steve manasian um that didn't do as well as it could have done so then my hunch is they made slaughter high appear as an american film to try and avoid the overt britishness that don't open till christmas potentially suffers from as a as a film which was Intended for an international audience, if you see what I'm saying.
1: The so the American thing, I'm aware of. Hellraiser was another one that was a British horror film, passing yep. itself off as American. Was it? Was there a sort of distribution thing there? Was it? Was it hard to sell for British horror in the 80s? I
4: mean, that's a, that's a good question as well. I think. Well, when it comes to a film like Don't Open Till Christmas, I say, which is a ostensibly a slasher film set in London, um, that was sold to Vestron Video, who at the time were sort of America's leading independent uh, company. You know, they paid a substantial amount of money for that film, irrespective of the fact that it was British. But I do think that even though there's no documentation to suggest this, I think that Pieces was such a success, and Don't Open Till Christmas comparatively, comparatively was not as successful, that it was always going to be a safer bet to make a film that appears American. And that's not just because it was a British production per se, but because, you know, as we all know, it was very common in exploitation cinema, you know, throughout Europe to have films, if they were Italian or whatever or otherwise, to oftentimes present as if they are American films because historically American films have always sold better, historically speaking. Mm. So that explains... Um, I think the business logic behind why Slaughter High passes itself off as an American film. Although I do think it's funny that clearly the writers of that film were not as au fait with American popular culture as perhaps they they could have been to make the film more effective. And I do think that the the crude Americanisms that are sort of are peppered throughout that film um, do make... For a uh, for a, for a funny watch, I mean, one of the characters I've written his name down. Uh, the main bully
3: mm.
4: is called Skippy Pollock, Skippy. which I think is just hilarious. I, Skippy, yeah, skip. yeah, Skippy, because that's what Americans are called, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Skippy like, or Chad or Brad.
4: Yeah, 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 exactly. Although exactly. he actually
1: isn't? he yeah. actually was an American, the actor that played that character, I think, wasn't he?
4: Yeah, that's true. He was um, an American, but, but the majority of, the, of the, the the majority of the cast um there, there was another american as well um oh, the coach. Least. the coach was wasn't the he? coach yeah he's he's definitely american mm. but by and large most of the cast are, are british mm-hmm. um and doing their best they're doing their best mm. to feign american accents
0: they're doing their best to look like american high schoolers
4: <laughs> yeah you know despite being 50 years old yeah. or whatever <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah so uh yeah.
0: Um, so yeah. I was kind of fascinated by. Uh, I mean, first of all, I actually quite enjoyed the film. I thought it was quite tight as a thriller. Um, but I was, I kind of wanted to ask about the moments where characters directly look at the camera. Like, there are a few. And I just think, like, it came out in 86, right? Is it when the genre is getting a bit more uh, referential? Is it like, is it kind of veering into parody in places?
4: Um, I think that is a fair assessment. I mean, I, th- I guess my response to that would be um, slasher films, like teen slasher films, I should say, um, always had comedy built into them, if only because, and Richard Noel talks about this in his excellent book, Blood Money, which is the first industrial history of, of, the, of the teen slasher film. He essentially talks about, uh, and I'm being, you know, very reductive here but he talks about teen slasher films being indebted to other forms of youth cinema that were popular in the late 70s mm. such as you know films like animal house and porkies and these other films which were, were which were overtly comedic so it it paid for the makers of these films um to anchor or at least partly anchor their films to other stuff that was that that was happening within within youth cinema to try and capture as large as large an audience as possible. Uh, but in terms of them looking at the camera, like one of the one of the one of the instances that really stands out for me is spoiler alert near the end of the film or the end of the film where the 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 ghosts or whatever the zombies of the of the people who have been killed burst through a door, and then one of the characters quite clearly, I think, accidentally looks at the camera. Mm -hmm. But uh, that take clearly was good enough. Yeah, I (laughs) did wonder. (laughs) I
0: wondered how intentional that was.
4: (laughs) I'm not sure. I think, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think that there is certainly an effort made on behalf of the writers to create something that is funny. But the extent to which it's, um, well, actually, come to think of it, there are a couple of moments where, slasher movies are are acknowledged like there's a bit where somebody puts a hockey mask on and mm-hmm. and jumps up yeah and it's Jason, which is which is interesting because as i said steve manesi and the producer had produced the original friday the 13th film and was involved in the sequels and the music of slaughter high is was composed by harry manfredini who also did the score the the scores for friday the 13th and yeah. its sequels so yeah laura i think you're right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, that, that ending is really funny. I suddenly yeah. felt like I was I was at some kind of student theater performance. Um, it all gets very androaring. Yeah,
0: it's funny. It's kind of creepy. I mean, it, it's a, it, a bit too long. You know what I mean? That goes on yeah. a bit too long.
4: <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can say that completely. No but also I think that like similar moments perhaps more effectively happen in other films from that period. So Maniac has a similar ending where well I suppose it's about like, it's like it's the carry ending whereby the you know the the hand comes out of the the mm-hmm. grave at the end something similar happens at the end of maniac and also don't go in the house uh where um you know the dead bodies of the of the of the killer's victims sort of uh, appear again so i suppose this was a this was a trope mm mm-hmm by this point yeah so um, like
0: we did um another slasher on the podcast slumber party massacre which i think was like 84 i'm not sure but it's american
4: yeah, yeah. I, think, I think that's so
0: right. that that was already parodying it all you know it was by that point mm. it was very sort of like a self-referential thing wasn't it
1: yeah, yeah for it was, sure yeah. especially the sequel as well then which was kind of musical version of <laughs> <laughs> very yeah. I mean this film has two uh oh it was all a dream moments which I feel like that's cheating. To do it once is pushing your luck, but then to do it twice in the same film is a bit much.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, the the film was supposed to end um was supposed to end on the the sort of the zombie ghost thing. And then the as I understand it the the distributor so it was again picked up by Vestrin um, it's interesting because it was pick, it was picked up by Vestrin, who was a video w- were a video label, but then they were venturing into theatrical distribution at this time, and Slaughter High was the first film that they actually put out oh. theatrically. So um, I guess it paid for the distributor to have some say in in the ending, and that's when they they shot this this new ending where Marty sort of looks at the camera and sort of pulls his face off. I honestly. I don't know what's happening in that sequence. <laughs> at all. Um and I and I watched it back recently and replayed the audio because I really can't work out what he says either. He says something, but it's slowed down, so it's like raw, raw, raw. <laughs> and it's really not clear what he says.
0: Yeah. Kind but, kind, of, kind of interesting that he's the one that survives as well. So it's the killer is not uh He's not impaled on anything. He he gets. He's the one who gets yeah. out You know, gets away. Yeah,
4: he's the hero of the piece. Sequel, yeah, <laughs> maybe. I
1: mean, well, you have to wonder, don't they, whether that was. I mean, if they were, if these guys had been doing the Friday the Thirteenth franchise, then you're you're always going to be wondering what your next franchise might be. And I guess it helps to leave something open.
0: Yeah. So I mean, this wasn't. Does it fit the category of like video nasty cuz is it is it a bit late for that cuz Johnny you've done a lot of research on this haven't you
4: Yeah it's it's not it's not a video nasty and in fact I mean it was released on video in Britain but this was um a couple of years after the video recordings act mm. was was passed It wasn't shown theatrically in the UK but it was a film that was it, it was distributed all over the world I mean it it did pretty well you know, relative to the climate in America, like theatrically, it it played a number of theaters, uh, through, throughout throughout the country in the, in the states. Um, but in terms of it being a controversial film, not really. It's so it, it, well, I I mean the the film that the guys that made Slaughter High made before this, don't open until Christmas, that was banned in Germany, <laughs> banned in Germany, um. <laughs> Which is an accolade. It is, yeah. That they probably could have capitalized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Make the most but of it. But it's interesting because that film, I mean, it's, I mean, both of these films, Don't Up Until Christmas, Slaughter High, like they're not, I mean, they're talked about now with some camp perfection, but at the time, nobody was like, oh, wow, yeah, these these two films are, are really significant or, or saying something. Um, but weirdly, Don't Up Until Christmas, because it was banned in Germany, the german video distributors um did this thing which was very common just got a hold of another film and retitled it and made it out as if it was a sequel to don't open till christmas mm. which i think is amazing that like you've got this sort of obscure film from 1984 that really doesn't do anything um remotely controversial suddenly in the late 80s is banned in germany and all of a sudden it's like it's worth you know creating a mock sequel to i mm. think that's funny but uh but which is i suppose What intrigues me about the period, because, you know, if you read the the histories of British cinema in the 1980s, Mm. nobody is talking about horror cinema, at least on the academic side of things, Um, because, you know, they aren't, I guess, especially visible Mm. or as visible as, um, you know, Derek Jarman's stuff. But clearly these films are having an impact of sorts, in different territories, albeit not in cinemas per se.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because the 80s was a pretty rough time for British cinema generally, wasn't it? I mean, we've in 1981, I can't remember the exact number, but it's like 30, 31 films, period, were made. (laughs) And then Channel 4 comes along. And of course, Channel 4 is not exactly funding the fantastical stuff, with the exception of like the Company of Wolves. They're not really funding horror or genre stuff, Um, but they are one of the only funders. So I just kind of wonder, yeah. It's it's such a sparse decade, maybe because like production funding is thin on the ground. But it's so interesting to hear about these films distributed globally, like distributed on video. Um, because we tend to think about, yeah, theatrical, but you know, there is this whole other mode of reception taking place.
4: Well, I, I think it's interesting because for for me, certainly don't open till Christmas, maybe Slaughter High to a lesser extent, but don't Until Christmas is this transitional film that embodies a lot of what made British films popular in the 70s, i.e. sexploitation and and, and horror films. And, and Leon Hunt, in his book British Low Culture, which I know you'll both be familiar mm. with, makes the point that towards the well, the mid to late 70s, the British horror films that were doing making the best money were those that were... Engaging with tropes of sex exploitation cinema as well, and he cites the likes of, well, *Killers Moon* and *House of Whipcord*. Um, and I think when Dick Randall, this American producer who went who moved from Rome to the to the UK in 1982, he no doubt was aware of that tradition in in in, in British cinema, and also probably aware of the of the Edie Levy. Now, I know that the, you know, the E.D. Levy went down the pan in 1985, but when Randall moved over in in 1982, even though cinema attendance was certainly declining and even though, you know, very few British films were being made, you know, Pete Walker's films were still being shown in cinemas and were still generating um, profits that would have led to E.D. subsidy Mm -hmm. had the E.D. Levy continued, even though... It it didn't. Mm. So, I guess you know it, within within writing on the nineteen eighties, a lot of the time there's this sense of despondency. Oh, you know, we we only want to make a British film if it's either going to be a, a huge success, or if it has something to say, mm-hmm. sort of a, yeah. a, a political film. What people miss, I think, is this middle ground where you have films that are not especially successful don't necessarily have something to say, but which nevertheless turn enough of a profit to warrant their existence. Yeah. If you see yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Um, i would never quite thought about it like that before, but th- yeah, you're right. Like the the low budget cultural value film versus the breakout, you know, Oscar winner and yeah. where the hell is the middle ground in the 80s. Because I, I honest, I've studied the eighties at length, and I can't think. I, I don't know.
4: <laughs> well, I think from the from the stuff that I've done, like, and obviously, Laura, I mean, you, you, you'll be, you know, st- steep in this stuff. But um, it seems to me from the from the discourse, so reading some of the books that were published just as the Ed Levy was scrapped, um, things like British Cinema Now, mm-hmm. which is like a BFI publication, where you know you've got journalists and people of the moment writing about what British cinema could be and what it should be. Yeah. And there is this dichotomy between should it be Bond? Yeah. <laughs> you know, should it be chariots of fire and, or should it be, you know, the, the, I guess the films like, like my beautiful laundrette or films that are culturally engaged And to me. If, if you split it like that, you know, you miss the in between. Mm-hmm you miss the in-between yeah and i think that films like slaughter high fall within that category because they are british and they are using british actors and there was a british director so there is some benefit to the british economy shall we say but you know, nobody, you know, yeah, as you say, Channel 4 is not rushing out to make the next Slaughter High at this at this time, No,
0: right. I mean, I think it was later, the commission Dust Devil, uh, 1990 maybe, and that was genre mm-hmm. horror, making a statement about how we're going to fund genre films, all that stuff. But in the 80s, very much like contemporary, yeah, politically engaged, dealing with cultural themes, having a kind of cultural mission, which I guess is part of what Channel 4 was doing and is, you know, really important, you uh, But then not, yeah, genre cinema gets a bit lost in all
4: of that. Yeah, I I would, absolutely, absolutely. But then even when I think, and I don't want to stray too far away from the point, so please keep me on track. But, uh, you know, I look at a film like Dust Devil and I think, well, what is that? Yeah, so do I. What is that (laughs) supposed to be? Do do you know what I'm saying? It's like, if you look at Slaughter High, it's like, oh, this is a teen horror film. Yeah, Yeah, that's what this is trying to be. Dust Devil is experimental and it's weird and it has a strange atmosphere and uh and I, I think it's interesting that the theatrical the theatrical bump around dust devil sort of semi-promoted as a horror film but then on video when it's released on the video yes this is definitely a horror film whereas there's some ambiguity around that film when it's released theatrically and when it's in the eye line of a broader audience whereas with slaughter high you know there is no attempt by the distributors um, and the marketers to mask what it is because it has a it has a home and it slots quite neatly into um into the marketplace both at home and overseas especially in america where Vestron, the video distributor was making was making waves
0: yeah it kind of is what
1: it is isn't it yeah in the 80s a lot of cinema until well you started to get multiplexes coming along but Obviously, like the actual cinemas themselves in Britain were just getting closed down and converted into bingo halls and bowling alleys, and there were fewer and fewer cinemas. But obviously, VHS was really taking off, and it makes sense that there would be people like this who didn't necessarily aim for a theatrical distribution. They just saw the video market as being the place to go.
4: Absolutely. And there's an assumption, um, certainly in Britain, that... Um, regarding the Video Recordings Act, and there's you know, the, the, an argument has been made time and time again that when the Video Recordings Act came in and the video nasty era ended, um, all independent distributors were crippled, and that was that, and then the majors prevailed. But of course, it's not as it's not as simple as that. There were loads and loads and loads of independent vid- video distributors targeting precisely this market. Mm. And were they really, 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 really successful? Well, no, not really. But did they turn a profit? Yes. And I think that um, certainly in Britain in the latter 1980s, when it was clear that, yeah, the major companies were had, were really invested in the market at this point and were putting out films like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Flashdance, distributors of independent horror cinema are not going to realistically be able to compete with that. So what do you do in that situation? Do you cut your losses and leave the industry? Or do you adapt and try to make it work by um, realising that, okay, we're not going to make millions and millions of pounds here, but we'll make enough yeah, to and, yeah. keep us in jobs.
0: And like to be honest, turning a profit in British cinema, especially in the 80s, is success. Like breaking yeah. even, even ma- breaking even, you know, or making any kind of money is quite impressive.
4: <laughs> no, absolutely. And Slaughter High was sold and I don't have the exact figures because, you know, these things are difficult to come yeah. by, but reportedly, you know, the the rights the, the world rights for Slaughter High will not have been cheap. Mm. Because certainly in America in the late nineteen eighties the video market was such that you know there were loads of independent distributors releasing horror films because they were so so successful and there's anecdotal evidence to suggest that in the sort of the, the the mid to to late 1980s horror was the genre that video store owners were were being asked for the most and it was not unusual for a film like I spit in your grave or some other exploitation title to do better than mainstream Hollywood film on video such was the demand um especially at Halloween and all the rest of it so yeah there was money to be made and in in video and Slaughter High was almost certainly made in response to that international demand mm.
1: well when I when I would visit the video shop in the 80s it wasn't um it wasn't ET I was renting. It was horror films uh, that were that I was too young to borrow, but they didn't care and would let me borrow them anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah, Cause explains a lot like. actually. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> that's what it was like in the eighties. They didn't, before Child's Play, they'd let anybody borrow anything. They didn't care.
4: So Adrian, do you mind? So how so how old would you have been <laughs> when well, you were renting these films? About ten. About ten. Mm-hmm. That is young. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Only only 15 rated stuff though. I wasn't an animal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I was yeah. I was too scared by some of the covers of the 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 really, you know. I mean great like stuff, I but... was
0: like born in 87, so I just I feel a kind of, you know that nostalgia, but it's not it's like, I hear about people's experiences of going to video shops and it feels like something mm-hmm. I lived through, but it's not, I've just read
4: about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I was born in 87 too. Right. so like, oh, you? Okay. Uh, yeah. So like, uh, it's, yeah. The, it's, the, it's the same for me. I mean, I have video shop memories, but to be fair, and I mean, I don't remember Slaughter High, but certainly that period, that style of artwork um, is something that, that resonates with me. And it would be no doubt very common so even though Slaughter High was released on VHS, I think in 1987 in Britain, um, key year, lots of amazing things happened that It year, did, yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, that film would have hung around on the shelves mm. almost indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Such was the, the video market, you know. Yeah. So even when, you know, the moment had passed for that film to make money for its distributors, people will still have been renting it. Um I've been reading
1: uh, obviously in preparation for this I've been reading some things that you have uh have recently published. I just Sorry actually, about that. It's okay. <laughs> I just finished reading your reissue of Peter Hutchins Hammer and Beyond book. Oh thank you very is, much. Uh, which is excellent. Um, Thanks, I, Adrian. And your introduction is is very interesting. Um but obviously that's um that's a slightly earlier period than what we're kind of talking about. But your essay on um on Roberta Finlay was interesting because you're talking in there about again about this period although she was america- making films in america but you were talking there um about this period of sort of straight to video um horror and getting it distributed getting films distributed i wonder if you wanted to uh, if you could sort of maybe i don't know connect slaughter high with what people like roberta fenley were doing in america
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, Roberta Findlay, who had her bread and butter was um, sexploitation films and she had made some hardcore films and, of course, is most famous for having some involvement in Snuff. Um, The tagline for which, what is that? The film that could only be made in South America where Mm -hmm. life is cheap. Where life is cheap. Yeah, so like that—that that is Roberta Findlay. That's that's her her school of, of thought, and it makes sense, or it's rather it's telling that a filmmaker uh, like Roberta Findlay would segue into horror in the mid nineteen eighties, um, because because of the video market, and because that's where that's the kind, the type of exploitation film that was selling, and certainly Slaughter High was born of exactly the same moment and was propelled, no doubt, by the same logic. Um, And as I said earlier, horror was, I mean, hugely successful. In 1985, um, there's a great article from Variety in 1985, which writes about the American video store, and writes about the horror genre specifically, being not just a, a seasonal genre, but a film that did well throughout the year. So it's not like a Christmas film, even though Don't Open Till Christmas is also a Christmas film. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a genre which um, is building traffic throughout throughout the year. And what something else that happens, which is quite interesting in the mid-1980s, is you start to get people m- not only making films for video, but actually shooting on video as well so the the quality depletes somewhat but that is clearly evident of a a marketplace that is very buoyant that allows even like quote-unquote the worst quality films to at least generate some business Um, and if you've got a film like Slaughter High which for all intents and purposes even if it's you know, a bit shoddy is still a proper film that was shot on thirty-five mil that has a cast and a budget and a distributor. Um, if you have the resources to push a film like that to make it more visible, well, you're in a you know you're in a good business position um, to to turn a profit and, mm. and 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 keep doing what and keep doing what you're doing. Mm. And I think that you know filmmakers like. Roberta Findlay. I mean, by the time you get to the late nineteen eighties, of course, and into the nineties, things change. And uh certainly with the rise of Blockbuster video, which tended not to stock as much independent horror production and had all sorts of policies around family entertainment and stuff, a market that was not necessarily a market that was conducive to the continued production of films like Slaughter High. Um, but these films, of course, have a legacy within cult film communities. And when the sell-through market takes off, and you can sell videos to to consumers rather than rent them, so th- the market changes hmm. certainly. Yeah. But but at least sort of from the early to to the mid to the late nineteen eighties, it's a good window whereby. Sort of micro-budget horror films could could really do well.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, thanks, Johnny. Uh, that was just like thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, that was so in, so informative. Like, <laughs> I know so much more well, now. I love these podcasts because you just get to learn from people. Well,
4: I like pod- I like being on podcasts as well, <laughs> and it's weird because um, this stuff is like, I don't know. I've just finished this. I've just finished a book on the video industry in Britain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's sort of fact packed, and I really have enjoyed writing it. Well, I say that. Well, did I really? Yeah. Well, I, I finished it. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but is this the kind of thing that people are going to be interested in? Do you know what I mean? You, you sort of, you think, are people interested in this detail? yeah no no they because, they are
0: uh well
4: we'll see won't we some, yeah. somebody out there
0: i mean i'm, I'm quite <laughs> i'm really bad at factual recall i just forget everything the second i start to say something so i can interpret but i can't recall stuff and it's really annoying but i'm really the worst mm. person to do podcasts that fans are going to listen to because i'm like oh it could have been <laughs> like now i can't really remember
4: um. <laughs> Well well what i my trick is just to speak authoritatively about things I know nothing about
0: <laughs> to stand as confident as possible
4: yeah
1: I've, I've made a career out of that that's, uh, so do you want to just tell us a little bit more before we finish about your um current research project, raising hell This sounds yeah, quite sure. intriguing
2: mm-hmm.
4: well thanks for thanks for plugging it so that's basically where my um where this slaughter high stuff is has, has come out of um so it's an the project raising hell is an, is funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and it's basically a two year project researching British horror film production of the of the eighties and nineties to try and you know right some of the wrongs <laughs> of uh of of scholarship which suggests that there is nothing of interest vis a vis horror produced in Britain in the nineteen eighties um and whereas you know i'm not the first person to acknowledge within the academy horror films produced in britain in the 1980s there is yet to be a sustained Mm. study quite a bit of fan writing for sure and certainly you know notable figures like richard stanley Mm. um have been examined um but in terms of you know people like dick randall and steve manesian the producers of slaughter high very little has been has been written about them but for me um it's th- their role in british cinema however minor remains very important and i want to historicize those two decades and write a well hopefully a book about about that stuff um and as i say i mean i'm about f- 4 or 5 months in mm-hmm. um and i mean i've learned a lot actually Certainly about film policy. Yeah. Like trying to get, I mean, Laura, I guess you're, you've are you been looking at this stuff. Like getting your head around film policy in 1980s Britain. <laughs> is it's quite
0: it- hard, yeah. But um, I found that for some reason, and this does not, does not make any sense, whenever I'm confronted with boring policy documents or legal contracts, I somehow get really into it. <laughs> I think the National Archives, uh, I could just spend ages going through this stuff. Um, I, I never remember any of it, obviously. Uh, but <laughs> it's quite interesting at the time. Um, but no, it's quite a complicated time, the 80s, in terms of film policy and subsidy and all that stuff. Yeah, and 90s as well. Well, I think
4: yeah, for sure, and you're right. And it's amazing that, you know, when, when a book materializes by an academic, which essentially does a lot of, a lot of the legwork and... Um, pieces a lot of that complicated stuff together i've just read what's it called jeffrey jeffrey mcnab's book which i can't remember the title of which is i think it's called i mean i could be wrong about this, saving british cinema or something but he goes back to the 1980s and basically lovely overview lovely overview of everything which is great because it means that i can position Mm. don't open till christmas and slaughter high Mm. in relation to other goings-on in the 1980s. And I suppose that's one of the most challenging things. I mean, because nobody's written about British horror in the 80s, really, trying to trying to write a narrative which encapsulates it all is a challenge. But it's very enjoyable, dare I say. And I just ho- I hope something good comes out of it. I'm sure so it fingers will. Fingers crossed. And well done yeah. for
0: getting a major project. Have you got like a postdoc or is it... Uh... Is it kind of like a, a self? Yeah, I don't know. Is it, are you the kind yeah, of only PI, or mean. do you have like a team? <laughs>
4: yeah, um, a PI. It's a fellowship, so no, I don't have any. So there's no, there's nobody else. I've got some cool project partners though. Mm. Um, I'm working with um, one which I'm not allowed to talk about yet, um, but I will soon. Um, I've got the University of Pittsburgh on board as well. I'm going over there to do um, to to present some oh, nice. some of the stuff. Which is which is cool. Uh, the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies as well are a project partner, so I'm going to be doing some stuff with them. And I've just heard, so I'm going to go over to in a when is it? When are we? March in the end of April. I'm going over to Slovenia oh. to the uh, Kaya Polt Cult Film Festival, and I'm going to present some of this Dick Randall and Steve Manasian stuff over there. Wow! Uh, which is which is going to be which is going to be fun because awesome. the more people know. About terrible horror films made in Britain <laughs> in the eighties, the better. Absolutely, preaching to I mean, the choir. Are you,
2: are
1: you going to, as part of this project, are you going to put on a conference? Are you going to have people come and talk
4: about this stuff, like to you, Adrian? <laughs> or... I am going to put on a conference. Oh. Yes. Yay. Um. Yeah. So. So next year, um, I'm going to do a conference hosted in Northumbria. No details yet. Um, But the the conference will be uh, rethinking histories of popular British film and TV, and uh, I won't mention the keynotes yet, um, just in case Mm -hmm. something happens, but hopefully the people who I have asked will still want to do it. Just uh. in case between now and then they go to a high school reunion
1: and never return, yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah that's right, because we don't know what these people did yeah to, to to you know to vindictive potential serial killers <laughs> yes. <you> know, teenagers.
1: <laughs> oh cool well uh, yeah well I'm I'm definitely up for uh, coming to a conference like that I'll, I'll I could come and talk
4: about norman j Warren I'm something.
0: definitely up for coming, I will definitely come. <laughs>
4: Awesome, thank you. And I will say that I want the conference to be because there aren't enough. Remember in the I mean, this is British film and T V academic mythologizing here, but that collection, British Cinema Past and Present from two thousand, edited by Andrew Hickson and mm. Justine Ashby, famously um with essentially the conference proceedings from a major conference at the University of East Anglia in nineteen ninety eight. We have not had a conference of that scale about British film and TV since then. Or if we have, I've forgotten about (laughs) it. (laughs) So I just think um, it will be great to get, because it's very buoyant this area, there are lots of really good people doing really good historical revisionist work, you two included, absolutely. (laughs) And I just think it's important that, you know, and we shine a spotlight on some of that stuff. Um, Because I think even today... Um, and I'm speaking anecdotally, but if, you know, if you say to students, oh, today we're going to study British cinema, yeah. they're, they're probably thinking, you oh, know, we're going to be studying really miserable, dreary stuff. Um, yeah, about, I've got a module you know, on
0: British cinema. Um, and that is generally sometimes what they think.
3: <laughs>
4: yeah, <laughs> well, really I think. In, well, exactly. So that we need to correct mm. the narrative. And that's not to say the miserable stuff. The miserable, grim, mm. bleak British cinema stuff—the traditional stuff—isn't significant. Like, of course it is, but we have a rich history of uh, popular cinema in Britain. Um, at least twenty years of which, i.e., the period that I'm looking at, has been completely <laughs> overlooked by the academy. So, mm. um, yeah, we've got to—it'll be good to return to, to some of this stuff, and even to the to the history that we think we already know, of say, you know, the the '50s, '60s, and '70s, and offer some fresh perspectives. Yeah. Well, that's the aim.
1: I can say that I've never seen chariots of fire but I have seen slaughter
4: high. So yeah. excellent. There you go. That's, that's the, the way right to way do way it. <laughs> uh, absolutely that's that's that is the that way, is to, the do way it. to do it. <laughs>
1: So again, we'd like to thank Johnny for taking time to come and talk to us about this horror classic, in inverted commas, Slaughter Classic high. might oh. be going too far. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you need those inverted um, commas.
1: Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, it was good fun. And it's really interesting to hear about his research. And obviously, we uh, will be keeping an eye on all the interesting things that he does in the future. Uh, anyway, so that's it for this episode. Um what else is there to say as always we'd love to hear from you do get in touch twitter is the main way that people get in touch with us um do you remember our twitter address uh i think it's at just, second just Features. at se- just second yeah. Features. Uh, we're also on yeah we're on email but no one ever emails us um so just tweet us um the contact details are also in the podcast notes and yeah that's about it um We'll be back hopefully next month with another one. Uh, let us know if you've got films that you think we should be talking about or if uh, if you have a project that you're working on that you think would fit with our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you and have you come on as well.
0: Yeah, we're always open to suggestions.
1: Mm. And of course, as always, just um, rate us on the podcast app of your choice and leave a review. Uh, if I say that often enough, maybe one day somebody will. Uh, <laughs> that would be nice. Actually, they may have done. I'd, I'm not even sure how. I'm to sure. Start, I'm so. sure we
0: have many five
1: stars. Yeah, there must between. be loads out there. I just haven't yeah. looked. Um But anyway, but that's always nice. Okay, so uh, yeah, thank you very much, everybody, and we will talk to you all again soon.
0: See you next month.
1: I'm waving. I don't know why I'm waving. They can't see me waving.
0: It's yeah. It's, a, it's another smooth it's ending. For Zoom
1: convention. Zoom convention. That's it. <laughs> and thank you. Goodbye. Right. <laughs> let's stop now.